Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Mostly hidden, remarkable work of Palestinians and Israelis over the past century. And I want to thank each of you for coming tonight. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a self-selecting, <laughs> it's, a, it's an act of, um, of uh, what, of bravery, I think, to take a stand that um, both people are human and they deserve dignity and respect. And, um, and that neither, the people who do this work together believe that neither can attain dignity and respect and security without the other. So each chapter in the book covers a different chronological period starting um, during Ottoman times around the turn of the 20th century. And um, every chapter is prefaced by two epigraphs, one by an Israeli, one by a Palestinian. And um, I want to read you the two epigraphs that um, preface the book as a whole. So um, the first one is the Palestinian Arab poet Mahmoud Dawish, who wrote, it's impossible for me to evade the place that the Israeli has occupied in my identity. Israelis changed the Palestinians and vice versa. The Israelis are not the same people that came and the Palestinians are not the same people who once were. In the one, there is the other. The other is a responsibility and a test. Together, we are doing something new in history. Will a third way emerge from these two? And the second epigraph by a Jewish-Israeli philosopher, Martin Buber, said, all real living is meeting. So tonight I'm going to offer you a little taste of the extraordinary work of ordinary Palestinians and Israelis. So for the next 40, 45 minutes or so, I'll talk a little bit about how I came to write the book give you some examples of the joint nonviolent initiatives, uh, identify some of the obstacles to success, like why hasn't all this work over a century ended the conflict? And finally, I'll share a bit of what I think is the significance of this work. So my intention in writing the book, um, you know, whenever you write a book, there's either conscious or unconscious hubris, like, oh, I have something to say, and I want this to make a difference, right? And I realized only on the day the book came out and what happened afterwards, the book was released on November 8th, 2016. Does anyone remember what, was the, what that day was? The election day. And um, it really changed the way I had intended it to be received. I thought, okay, yeah, we as Americans and wherever I go in the world with this book are going to, I want people to support the Palestinians and the Israelis in this work. I learned during my book tour in Northern Ireland, for example, that um, 
the grassroots work that was done in Northern Ireland between Protestants and Catholics and British um, were supported to the tune of like, uh, from the EU, about $50 per head per person and really helped to end the troubles. In Israel and Palestine, it's about $5 per head, right? Um, and that's um, getting less, I think, not more at this point. So um, what happened after the book was released on election day is that it flipped. And everywhere I went, I've been in almost three dozen places in four different countries and all different kinds of venues. Um, people heard that this work against or across deep polarization and inequality under impossible political conditions often is exactly what we need as an inspiration here. So I had the privilege of listening to many, many people's act stories of activism and, um, and saying that this work that the Palestinians and Israelis have done have validated everything that we're all trying to do. So how I came to write the book has something to do with coming of age, like many of you here, um, in a decade uh, that was witness to four assassinations in five years of our national leaders in the 60s. And I joined our collective response to, that, um, to those events by being part of um, the anti-war movement, the feminist movement, the civil rights movement. I trained in civil disobedience, got arrested um, for blocking the Boston Army base and the Newton Draft Board. This is while I was an undergrad. My professor had organized this group between Brandeis and Harvard. We all got arrested. He went back to work the next day. <laughs> Um, he's actually blurbed the book. <laughs> Did he give you extra credit? But it seemed to me at that point that organizing was the highest thing that you could do. So in April of 75, when the Vietnam War ended, two months later, I was on a plane to Israel to see um, if the lessons that we had learned about grassroots organizing could be of any use to Israelis and Palestinians. It's, it's helpful to be naive to do this work, just like the Parkland students, how powerful they are with all that they don't know, which is a good thing. Um, so I stayed for five years. I'd already lived for a year in Jerusalem a few years earlier, um, but I stayed for five years and I founded uh, what's called the co-counseling community. And I had studied co-counseling as an undergrad at Brandeis and was impressed by how it facilitated breakthroughs in people on opposite sides of the inequality divides. So whites listen to blacks, men listen to women, non-Jews listen to Jews, uh, middle and working and, uh, and owning classes listen to working class. And um, just people's personal stories expose the effects of institutionalized oppression in our lives and made us allies. So now I invited Israelis and Palestinians to encounter each other as peers for the first time to learn firsthand of the other's suffering and dignity, listening to the other, simple, right? Deep, open-hearted listening, um, shattered stereotypes, exposed inequality, and cultivated a sense of mutual respect, compassion, and responsibility for the other. Many years later, during the Second Intifada, the early 2000s, I spent a sabbatical year back at Brandeis' scholar in residence at Brandeis' Women's Research Center to finish my first book on women and gender in early Jewish and Palestinian nationalism. And every time the manuscript was at press, I was 
starting to research the question that I had about why the work I had done in the 70s was so, um, so that so many people were willing to risk the condemnation of their own people, to risk um, some people were risking their lives, um, and to go against the status quo to, to question you know, who they were and who the other is. Um, so by asking that question, I started to think, didn't we all think that we were all doing everything for the first time, that you know, we were the first ones that ever did this kind of protest and all this? So of course I found out, oh wait, I also had the good fortune of having a research assistant who was a young Palestinian undergrad at Brandeis, from then communist Nazareth in Israel, who had grown up with these initiatives. She took them for granted. So she was a great uh, addition to this search that I was starting. So it didn't take long to find out that my work in the 70s was a tiny piece of a broad, diverse, persistent effort by Palestinians and Israelis since the turn of the 20th century. Quick question of definition. When you say Palestinians and Israelis, those Israelis include the Arabs in Israel? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a great. Arabs on. Okay, repeat the question. Yeah. So when I say Israelis and Palestinians, um, who are the Palestinians that I'm talking about? Yes? Who are so, the Palestinians you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. And the answer is yes. <laughs> I'm talking about all of them. <laughs> no, yes, I'm talking about all of them. So, and in the book, I'm very, very specific about which Palestinians are involved, but it's, it's both the Palestinians that are, that's like 18% of the Arabs in Israel who are Muslim and Christian, and it's often also Palestinians across the border. When I was there, it was both from Gaza and the West Bank. Now it's primarily the West Bank. But, the, but in my book, the initiatives include Palestinians from, from West Bank and Gaza. the word Israelis, you are not including the Arabs of Israel? <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I spend some time talking about the difficulty of just speaking about this, right? So yes, so I, I tried as much as possible, I'm pretty careful in the book about saying Jewish Israelis, Jewish Palest or um, Arab Israelis, or Palestinian Israelis, as they've been called differently at different times. And also, I mean, then you can get involved with um, Jewish Arabs, right? So there are also people who are participating, who are Jews and Israelis, who, whose mother tongue and came from Arab countries, their heritage is from the Arab countries. So thank you for clarifying. Yeah, so I found out there was this much longer involvement of Arab-Jewish nonviolent action. And this is the other thing about language. It's very complicated. I almost, you know, many times I was paralyzed in writing the book because I knew that every word was charged and ambiguous and multifaceted. So I often use Arab-Jewish when I'm talking about stuff that happens before 48, when there weren't Israelis yet, right? And then I often use Israeli and Palestinian or sometimes Israeli Arab. Israeli Arab, I use like from 1948 to 67. So you'll see. <laughs> um, when anyone heard that I started working on this book on joint nonviolence, they all exclaimed, oh, that must be a short book, <laughs> right? Which was actually the reaction to my first book about women and gender in Jewish and Palestinian nationalism. And, and quite to my own astonishment, I found so much information I found so many, um, so many examples that um, it was overwhelming. Uh, I had to, I'll, I'll tell you the uh, criteria that I had to use to narrow things down. 
I'll, this is sort of like something I should say at the end, but I think what happened um, that enabled me to write this book is that what gave me hope as I was doing the research is that in, er the, you know, in this chronological uh, story, this narrative that I'm trying to learn as I did the research, at every, the end of every era, like um, the Ottoman times and end of the Ottoman Empire, World War I, right? Then the British come. At the end of every, every era, that was something catastrophic happened to make it the end of an era, a world war, cold wars, um, regional wars. And in each of those moments, Palestinians and Israelis would, um, the, what the work they had done would be destroyed, like many things were being destroyed during that time, not just their work. And the next period, they would start again, maybe not even knowing what had gone on before, but somehow responding together to the new set of conditions in the 20s and 30s, for instance, being um, part of the British Empire and the, uh, the mandate of the British to rule Palestine. So I found pieces of the history buried everywhere in literature of all disciplines, and then in the summer of 2012, found 1,000 initiatives on the web. Not all of them completely kosher, because you could tell which websites were um, erected in order to get EU funding, but maybe didn't really have so much um, substance. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting. So I have over 500 initiatives in the book, and they represent this tiny fraction of what the two peoples created together over the course of a century. And I hated leaving out so many initiatives, so now I have a website. And on the website, um, there is one page that has um, 250 websites, so you can do more research from the book in the areas that you're interested in. And there's a section where you can add um, an initiative that's not in there, either during the period which ends in 2010 or since 2010. So there's a sort of um, collective effort now to, to follow what's going on. So here's, the, here's how I narrowed down uh, the, uh, here's the criteria to include what I did. The first one um, was that I felt most important was that I was not going to out a group or a person because there's a lot of risk involved. And um, there's something that is powerful about this work about staying under the radar, number one. On the other hand, it also occurred to me as I was um, immersing myself in this that uh, invisibility of these groups is also part of what perpetuates the conflict. So I felt I was walking a line um, that I had to be very careful that I wanted people to know, but I didn't want to put anything in there that you couldn't find already in some kind of media form. The second one is that there are groups like this all over the world, all over the United States, Western Europe at least, um, and I decided that I was only going to include those groups that had people who lived in Palestine and Israel. Right, who lived in the West Bank, Gaza, and um, in Israel. Um, I do include things like Seeds of Peace, which happened in that you know, summer camp that happens in Maine, but that's because they have a great follow-up program back home. Uh, so the other thing, with number three, they had to pursue nonviolent means of opposing inequality, occupation, and terror, and refrain from rhetoric that portrayed the other as intrinsically illegitimate and monstrous. Number four, they had to show awareness of inequality between the two peoples and a willingness to address it in their groups. 
And finally, I also included some examples of what I call allies, which are groups that are going on only in Israel and groups that are going on only in the West Bank and Gaza, but that the work that they're doing benefits the other side. So those are the allies. Now, I cast a broad net of what I was going to include that didn't limit it to my own ideological or strategic views. Right? I decided that I was willing to be uncomfortable <laughs> to, um, in order to have um, a wide range, a wide range of the diversity of the groups. So the one thing I can promise you is that there's something in this book to offend everyone, <laughs> right? including myself. <laughs> and here's what, I, here's what I write in the book about what, I, what I'm asking of the readers. The striking diversity of ideologies methodologies of the joint initiatives demands of you, the reader, what the encounters themselves demand of Palestinians and Israelis. That you sit with the discomfort of difference and open yourself to viewpoints that can sound like they're rooted in propaganda, naivete, or treacherous lies. The readers, like the participants, will encounter an array of positions regarding Jewish nationalism, like Marxist Zionism, socialist Zionism, secular and religious right-wing Zionism, religious left-wing Zionism, anti-Zionism, and post-Zionism, and an array of positions on Palestinian nationalism that are right and left-wing, Marxist and capitalist, secular and Islamic, pacifist and militant, moderate and radical. Some readers will see these initiatives, some of the initiatives, as a thin veneer for ruthless aims. If you feel you can't bear to read anymore, keep going anyway. It's possible that if you, the reader, like the participants, allow yourself to experience unbearable difference, to disagree with, be offended by, condemn, or reject this work, while continuing to listen to the multiple contradictory voices of the text, you too will gain a nuanced appreciation of both people's courage to be allies. So I'm gonna share with you a few of the initiatives and um, I'm gonna see <laughs> if you're familiar with some of them. Some of them are very high profile and others are, are less well known. So here's one that I led when I was in my 20s in the 1970s. Has anybody heard of Wahat As-Salam, Neve Shalom? So um, it's the only um, joint village in Israel. It's halfway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. They got the land from uh, Latrun Monastery, which until Neve Shalom began to be built was just, there was one church, like an old church, and um, the hilltop that they lease for a dollar a year to Neve Shalom, Wahat As-Salam, overlooks when I was there, a vast valley of folding um, hills and nothing there except for purple thistles. And it, the land hadn't been cultivated in 500 years. So now, if you visit it, it's a bustling, intentional village with um, an incredible binational school where their children are raised with Hebrew and Arabic. It's got, um, I think, a hotel or a place that you can stay. There's a, there's a school for peace that um, people come from all over the world and Israel and Jordan and Egypt to... Um, learn how to um, work with coexistence on an educational level, um, and on and on. There's a spiritual chapel. Anyway, it's a, it's a bustling place. When I was there, there was one tin shack. I don't even know where we went to the bathroom. Probably in the hills. And um, 
30 Palestinians and Israelis sat together in this shaft for the first time. They agreed to abide by rules that we take for granted today, but we're kind of new then, like keep confidentiality, one person speaks at a time, listen deeply with compassion, share your life story, no political harangues, right? You're sharing your, your, from your heart your, what, what happened to you. Pain blocks, this is the um, co-counseling part, pain, pain blocks fresh thinking, right? When something hurts you, it's hard to open to it. And release of painful emotion happens when uh, a person receives open-hearted attention, but the personal was deeply political. And every sentence cut like a knife. So there was one time when an Israeli uh, broke the rules and jumped from her chair shouting, to a Palestinian man who was telling the story of being exiled from his village and his village being destroyed. She said, propaganda, lies. Um, she silenced him. And so people turned loving attention to her. First, she attacked the man, dismissing his pain as a scheme to destroy Israel. Second, she shifted gears to her own story you don't know what expulsion means until you've walked away like I did from my home in Egypt at the age of eight, clutching the hand of my six-year-old sister to cross the desert to Israel. She wept through the details of attacks by Arabs on Jews in Cairo, where they had lived in harmony for generations. Third, after she went through her own story, now she began to recount the details of the Palestinian man's story. She appreciated his truth for the first time, and now his story broke her heart. She happened to be a speaker at the Knesset and brought a new perspective to her work. So turning points like this happen all the time. Another example, 67 war and the borders open between Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. And a young Palestinian man named Bashir crosses the border from the West Bank to knock on the door of his childhood home in Ramallah. Not Ramallah in the West Bank, but Ramallah in Israel. A home that his grandfather had built. A teenage girl, Dahlia, opens the door. He discovered that a Jewish refugee family lived there and over the next two decades, the families visit each, visited each other across the borders. Bashir and Dahlia finally decided to dedicate their house as the first community center in Ramla for Jews and Arabs to meet and celebrate. They call it, anybody know? Does sound familiar? Open house. Open house. They've traveled around also to talk about it. Number three. When Hamas militants killed a 19-year-old Israeli soldier, his Orthodox Jewish father discovered his son's clandestine peace activism and refused the customary official consolation that promised revenge. So his son was keeping the, uh, his activities from his dad for shalom bayit, right, for peace in the house. So instead, he sought out the father, the bereaved father, sought out Israeli and Palestinian families whose children were killed by the other. At one of the early meetings, a bereaved Palestinian father, again, broke the rules and interrupted 
an Israeli father's story of grief, shouting. To tell you the truth, each time an Israeli child is killed, I'm happy there will be one less soldier to hurt my child. The Israeli father rose, trembling with rage, clutching a heavy table, yelled, to tell you the truth, I want to throw this table at you now for rejoicing at my child's death. The room was silent, and in that silence, the bereaved parents got a glimpse, witnessed the roots of revenge and its inability to protect their loved ones. They formed an organization committed to nonviolence to change their shared future. Does anyone know the name of this one? Yes, yes. It's changed the name a bunch, but Family Forum, Bereaved Parents, Family Forum, Family Circle, Parents Circle. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Another one. You might recognize this one, this organization. In the middle of the night, an Israeli combat officer and his soldiers raided an Arab home on the West Bank, suspected of harboring a terrorist. The officer ordered the father, the mother, and their two young children out into the street while his men searched their house. Suddenly, the little girl started running towards the soldier the officer, and he had seconds to decide whether she was carrying a bomb and whether he should shoot her. That moment changed his life, and I'll get back to that story in a moment. Meanwhile, a Palestinian Muslim woman trained to be a suicide bomber in revenge for the suffering of her family. On the day before she strapped the explosive belt to her body, she was arrested. She had the intent to kill as many Israelis as possible. During her six years in Israeli prison, she read Gandhi and Mandela and befriended an Israeli woman prison guard who treated her kindly. When she was released, the combat officer, who did not shoot and could not shoot, um, and she, the uh, would-be terrorist, met in an organization where killers, committed killers on both sides proclaim, we refuse to take part anymore in the mutual bloodletting. We will act only by nonviolent means so that each side will come to understand the national aspirations of the other. Anybody know the name of that one? Combatants for Peace. And there's a great film, that, a great documentary that has come out, really fantastic. I'm not sure I can remember the name of it, but you can find it under Combatants for Peace. And now I'm just going to briefly, one line for um, a bunch of different um, ways that uh, transformations are triggered by encounters, these kind of encounters. An Orthodox Jewish supporter of the illegal extremist group Kach becomes a renowned Israeli feminist peace builder. A Palestinian imprisoned for a decade for building a bomb to kill Israelis, now works to bring Palestinian and Israeli youth together. A former West Bank settler who supported the ultra-ethno-nationalist Israeli Moledet Party now stands with women to monitor checkpoints. A wounded Palestinian who spent four years in prison forms an organization to promote nonviolence in Palestinian society. It's a great movie about that, too. It's called Encounter Point. 
Ali Abu Awad, who grew up in a West Bank village so close to a Jewish settlement that they heard each other's TVs at night, but never met. He turned his family's empty piece of land on the West Bank into a place for Israeli settlers and Palestinians to meet. And they also tour um, Rabbi uh, Hanan Schlesinger and Ali Abu Awad have been speaking. A Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi pray together with their congregations on a hillside splattered with blood-red poppy flowers. Arab and Jewish surgeons operate to save hundreds of children's hearts. Children of enemies run together on the grass playing soccer. Israelis and Palestinians stand in solidarity facing the Israeli army to protect a threatened olive grove against uh, building the security wall in the middle of their village. Another was young and old from Palestine, Israel, and Jordan gather in a eucalyptus grove outside of Tel Aviv for listening circles by day and making music all night under their one vast starry sky. Does anyone know that one? That's um, an organization called Sulcha, which is the Arabic word for um, how you negotiate, a certain kind of um, negotiation between groups who are an antagonistic to each other. 15, a Palestinian lawyer creates the first Arab Holocaust Museum and takes it in a mobile uh, van throughout the West Bank, talking to people who are planning terrorist attacks. And they're going like, oh, I think we have to rethink. They said, literally, they, you're bringing us a bomb. Right, this is like, which is, um, for me, um, was shocking to learn that um, Many, many people don't know about the Holocaust, and if they do, they think that 20,000 people died. So that's brave for him to do. And then the last one that I'm going to mention is four Israeli Jews and four Palestinian Arabs from Israel and the West Bank, I'm not sure about Gaza, are chosen for their physical stamina and their entrenched opposition to the other. They travel together to Antarctica. They make the unbearable, treacherous climb up a formidable mountain sheathed with ice, pulling each other up the mountain with ropes, saving each other's lives. And every step of the way, they have been arguing vehemently with each other. When they get to the top, they come to agreement about one thing. Well, if Israelis and Palestinians can do this together, they can do anything. And uh, what is that organization called? Breaking the Ice. <laughs> so those are 15 out of 500, over 500. And um, I want to talk now about three obstacles to this work, having success. Like why haven't these goodwill efforts over the course of a century have more of an impact? Um, so most people on both sides, number one, see peace as a luxury. And nationalism, the demands and the needs of nationalism, trump, no, overshadow, sorry, overshadow um, coexistence, the imperative of coexistence. And that makes them vulnerable to outside manipulation by Ottoman rulers, British rulers, Cold War powers, regional rulers, who use them as pawns in their own power games. Money flows to weapons not just to both sides, dividing Israelis and Palestinians, but dividing Palestinians as well. 
Number two, activism occurs between two sides that are not equal. There's no symmetry, no mutuality. Israel is a state with an organized army, Palestinians stateless. Jewish Israelis are a tiny minority in an Arab Muslim Middle East and an outpost of Western cultures that the powers of the West alternately back and condemn. This intertwining of two one-way inequalities demands a unique response that joint resistance provides by unwinding strands of whose responsibility it is to take action on whose behalf. Activists, because so, both sides think often that they're the only victims, right? And the other one is the only perpetrator, and it's not true. So the activists that join these groups get to oppose both Israeli military rule over Palestinians and threats to Jewish lives. The most successful initiatives address inequality. Those that don't often perish. This is what I call the double helix of domination. Uh, Orientalism or anti-Arab attitudes and anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish attitudes that undergird destructive actions towards the other. Other successful nonviolent movements had a single opponent, like the British in India or the apartheid government of South Africa, but Palestinians and Israelis have two opponents. One is the Western-based anti-Arab bias, even towards Jews from Arab countries, and the other is the anti-Semitic Arab attitudes that see Jews as illegitimate foreign power and deny their roots and existence as a people in that land. These intertwined inequalities confuse the allies of Israelis and Palestinians, convincing them that supporting one side means attacking the other. And anti-Semitism is this thing that gives big powers the appearance of defending the Jewish state when they're really set up as visible agents of the superpower, which is a traditional setup, right? As long as oppressed people's rage can be turned on Jews, then big powers maintain control and other people's liberation fails. So I see anti-Semitism as um, attacking Jews only as the first target and that it really hurts anybody who's struggling for liberation, for dignity. That's why it's, it goes on even without Jews being around. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. There's a prominent Palestinian historian that you might have heard of, Rashid Khalidi, who recognized this when he said that Palestinians had to see Zionism not only as a settler, colonial settler movement, but a necessary national liberation movement, and that this recognition by Palestinians was crucially important to eventual reconciliation. Third um, thing that undermines their power to coalesce as a movement, right? There's, there are all these diverse initiatives. Um, every, oh, the groups are divided by dual and dueling narratives of Israel and Palestine. Every place name and historical event is a field of contestation and casts someone, no matter what you say, into ally or enemy orbits. So, Let's ask the people in these groups, do you defend Zionism and celebrate the return of a dispossessed indigenous Jewish people to its ancient homeland? 
Or do you attack Zionism as a colonial imperialist thief of land and dignity of an indigenous Palestinian people? Is Zionism a national movement, a national liberation movement, or a racist regime that must be dismantled? Are Jews a nation or just adherents of a religion? Do Palestinians exist as a people, or are they an invention of Arab political machinations? Do Palestinians pay the price with the loss of their homeland for European-generated genocide of Jews? Or are they terrorists defending Arab and Muslim hegemony? Is Israel a homeland for Jews or a nation for all its citizens, Arab and Jewish? Is it an inspiring democracy or savage military regime? How do you think the participants answer this question? Not to everything, but they say yes, meaning that it, this and more, cover, you know, they span all of these different positions. Yes, the answer is yes. Which means that because they span all these perspectives and more, they can reach a broad um, base of people, a broad cantankerous base, I would say, of resistance to the status quo, but this, deserve, this diversity is an obstacle to uniting across their own differences in order for the initiatives to become a movement. Someone who belongs to one group would never be able to work for that one over there or with them. So what difference does it make that thousands of Palestinians and Israelis have engaged in hundreds or thousands, you could say, of joint nonviolent initiatives over the course of a century? The power of their work derives in part from the fact that despite the obvious interdependencies, most Jews and Arabs don't meet. Almost all of these groups bring people together who have never seen the other. And just that moment of starting to see the other as human is um, shattering and uplifting to many of them. What they do see of each other confirms brutal stereotypes of terrorists, imbalances of power, of ruled and ruler, and intent to harm. Edward Said is another prominent Palestinian-American scholar who wrote, an idea is alive today here and there among Jewish and Arab individuals frustrated with the depredations of the present. The essence of that vision is coexistence in ways that require an innovative daring, a willingness to get beyond the Arab arid stalemate of assertion and rejection. Once initial acknowledgement of the other as equal is made, the way forward becomes not only possible but attractive. He is part of a joint, he was, he's not alive anymore. He, was, he created a joint initiative with the conductor Daniel Berenboim, uh, an Argentinian Israeli, who um, for, they formed an orchestra um, taking young people like uh, anyone from 10, but mostly in their 20s. Um, from, all the, from many, many countries of the Middle East, including Israel and the Palestinians. And um, first they met in the Weimar, Weimar Republic, then they met in Sevilla, in the places where um, uh, Jews and Arabs had lived in um, some rich coexistence. And uh, Said's hope for that acknowledgement of the other as equal did occur decade after decade in this joint work that spread to more places, reached more people with more approaches and more fields of endeavor as the century went on. I was actually gonna end the book because the century ends nicely in the year 2000, right? 
So I was going to end the book initially in 2000, but um, as I started working on it, the, the, intifada, the second intifada came to an end, and um, everybody said, well, it's a good thing you're ending in 2000 because nothing happened. Nothing has happened during the second intifada. It was too bloody. It was too brutal. And so I went in 2005, just as the intifada was ending, and I spoke to um, Palestinians and Israelis who um, had been doing the work in the 80s and the 90s, like 10, 15 years earlier. And I said, so tell me you know, what your work was like then. He said, no, I want to tell you about the meeting we had last year and the meeting we had two years ago and the meeting that's happening tomorrow. Um, I couldn't get them to talk about that because so much had gone on that we didn't know about. Right, and that was, um, so that's why I extended it first to 2005, then to 2010, and I really didn't want to stop writing it, <laughs> but I had to. So, um, let's see. So what, what, what was the benefit of this, this work if the conflict is still going on? It challenged leaders' policies. It opened doors for people to stand together in unprecedented ways. It bolstered visibility and rights not only for Palestinians, but for Mizrahi Jews and women and children and gays and lesbians and, rights and, and bereaved parents. Uh, these groups brought together artists, educators. It's a huge a number of these um, in the field of education and with young people. Environmentalists, scientists, professors, business people, athletes, architects and city planners, community organizers, political activists who acted on the behalf of the other's needs. The longer the conflict, the deeper the need for change, the more persistently alliances arose. These activists, these joint activists, created chances, at least momentarily, for people to live together with some dignity and respect. They opened arenas for democratic processes that transformed fear and hatred into trust and curiosity. They struggled against racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, inequality, occupation, and human rights abuses. They opened access to health care, protected women's and minorities' rights, and created chances for children and adults to learn tolerance. You might have heard there's an assumption on each side that there is no one to talk to on the other side. And if uh, overtures are made, that they're not sincere. But these Israelis and Palestinians dared to meet each other. They dare to meet with only their own desperation to face a terrible situation. They don't wait until conditions are met, until the other recognizes their, their uh, political legitimacy, until bombs stop falling, or until leaders find solutions. On the contrary, they bring their lack of readiness to face the other. They come without roadmaps and without knowing how to speak to risk meeting those who have killed their loved ones. Their own people call them naive, misguided, and traitors. They are ostracized, jailed, and murdered for working together. And yet, they create pockets of profound human connection that changes lives. Their work provides alternatives to the lacrimose trail of diplomatic failure alters the perception of what divides their people. Instead of Arab versus Jew, it's those willing to live with the national aspirations of the other versus those who refuse. Joint initiatives are interventions with potential to heal trauma that feed cycles of violence. 
They reveal hidden connections between two peoples with roots in one land. They are arenas for both peoples to live the ethical imperatives of their three religious traditions that advocate justice, mercy, and compassion. And intimacy grows from asking the other to witness one's suffering, to acknowledge responsibility for it, and to end it. When Arabs and Jews find ways to meet despite their well-earned fears and fury, they're not wild idealists, but sober prophets. They warn us time and again that if we don't take responsibility in difficult but necessary ways, if we don't under overcome the compulsion to blame, rage, and take revenge for genuine injustice, then violence will escalate and more children will die and security and freedom will elude our grasp. And they're right every time. So theirs is not a genteel piece, but a messy hash of pain, friendship, betrayal, commitment, disappointment, and inspiration. Those who find ways to work together behold the tragedies of the past, take fresh action in the present to make a difference in the future. And like, ar like artists, nonviolent activists stand at the bloody seam of social, political, class, and national fissures. They enter the unknown, both surrendering to and sundering limits. So I want to close with the um, words of uh, two different perspectives on the significance of this extraordinary work. The first is the poet-singer Leonard Cohen. One rabbi I know calls him the Cohen Gadol of our times. Cohn died the day before the election, and may his memory be a blessing. He gave a concert in Israel in 2009, in which he sent all the proceeds to the bereaved parents' family forum. This is what he said about this group. This is not about forgiving and forgetting. This is not about laying down one's arm at a time of war. This is not even about peace, although God willing, it could be a beginning. This is about a response to human grief, a radical, unique, and holy, holy, holy response to human suffering. I bow my head in respect to the nobility of this enterprise. Then at the concert's close, he spoke about the efforts of the others who engaged in joint nonviolent initiatives. He said, I want to draw our respectful attention to the Palestinians and Israelis here today to, that do this work together, some of whom are called naive, foolish, irrelevant, or dangerous. But no, no, not at all, friends. They have achieved the victory, perhaps the only victory available, the victory of the heart over its own inclinations for despair, revenge, and hatred. And last, I'll offer you the words of the American historian Howard Zinn, who wrote The People's History of the United States. And I think his historical perspective illuminates um, what the Israelis and Palestinians achieved together in some way. Human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act. 
And if we do act in however small ways, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. Thank you so much for your patience. Read the book. You'll see that they exist there. <laughs> Sorry? I say read the book. Oh, so the oh. question was, with all of these groups, the impression I have is that um, they all meet in Israel. But I'm saying that quite to the contrary. They meet, um, they have met in Gaza. Gaza is tough now to meet, right? But um, they have met there historically. They've met in the West Bank, and they've met in Israel, in Arab villages as well as in Jewish villages. And um, yeah, they do. No, I think that you'll find that um, it changes with history because um, for a while, yeah, so it depends on what historical time you're speaking of, right? Because these names that we're using, Israel, Palestine, and Gaza, are so many years old, and then there were things going on all over. So, yeah, I think as we get closer to the present, um, there is, especially during the Oslo years, there's a tremendous amount of support for Palestinians worldwide this point to, to create organizations like this um, that are then um, taking initiative from the Palestinian side to um, invite Israelis over, over there. And there's always been a lot of cross-border work. In the 70s, we did meet in the West Bank when I was doing the work. And um, um, I mean, I think for Israelis who are, have only been in the West Bank with guns, right, or on military duty, the idea of being welcomed into a Palestinian home, which I'm sure, as everyone knows, the hospitality is amazing. So it was, um, was powerful just in and of itself without even having the conversations. There were times, however, that Palestinians during that period were stopped at the border and could not come join the group. So we had formed you know, um, an ongoing program, but sometimes they couldn't come. So, and that's something that stands in the way. Yes, your name, please. My name is Mike. This is Mike. As the, um So you said that um, the first part of the question was um, that you see things going on in a, um, a more like a diplomatic level, no. and then there's um, then you see the ground roots, the grassroots. Right. Are, are the are the people who are living like like you know the, next are the people living next to each other on the West Bank in the are. Jewish towns? Yes, yeah, and the Palestinians. Yeah.
something in the future does work out, it's going to be bottom up. Absolutely. Not top down. And if something does work in the future, it's going to be bottom up, not top down. <laughs> so um, that's my, been my perspective as well. I, I always say that you need things going on at all different levels. And the interesting thing is that in Israel and Palestine, because it's small, we're talking about a small number of people, um, those, um, there's a lot of permeability between the grassroots and the diplomatic. So there'll be people who start out doing the grassroots work, and then they run for the Knesset, Arab and Jew, and they get involved on a more diplomatic level. And then they, they start initiatives on that level. And then if that doesn't work after a while, they go back to the grassroots. But, um, but I think that um, I don't think anything can ha I don't think anything has ever happened anywhere in some level without grassroots um, push, right? At least that was the, that's the world that I grew up in. So it's a tiny world, <laughs> tiny time. But yes, I think so, that um, without that work. What they say is that um, you know, this work could stop now. Like as I was writing the book, I'm, say I'm thinking like, is this gonna be a snapshot of one century, like the first century of the conflict, which is a horrible, Phrase, right? Um, and I thought, like, so at worst come to worst, at least people will have a record that this kind of work was going on. On the other hand, people also say that should there be a diplomatic breakthrough, there will be this um, strong foundation of people who have had practice doing very difficult work of talking to each other, of learning the other's narrative, of seeing, like, how do I, how do I alter my own concept of self and Israel and Palestine, now that I know the other one's narrative, right? There'll be this um, a group of people who can support the diplomatic change. So, yeah. Yes, your name? Michael. Michael Wasserman. So I know people like that on both sides, actually. I was just at a um, meeting of two women, Arab, did I speak about this here? An Arab and Israeli who grew up, well the woman, the Palestinian woman um, brought her family 
to live in Nevi Shalom. And the Jewish woman, the Israeli woman, Jewish Israeli, Palestinian Israeli, Jewish woman had grown up there, so she was like a generation younger. And when she got her um, notice to go into the army, she was her best friend, who happened to be Palestinian, was standing next to her. And, and, and the girl knew exactly, the Palestinian knew exactly what it would mean for her to go or not go, right? What she was going to do about it. And she herself, the Israeli woman, didn't know what she was going to do. And she, um, she had been struggling with it for years. And, um, and something happened. I forget what her story is, but something happened. And it was very clear to her that she wasn't going to go. But as she told us this story last week, she said, but I want to make it clear to you that I'm not opposed to violence. I really believe that we need um, an army to defend ourselves. Um, Palestinians don't have an army. They have nothing to defend themselves. And um, I think that um, I think that you'll find that, like even in um, South Africa, right? Um, there was a time when they were using weapons against apartheid. They were being trained in um, where, Namibia or some the next country over Zimbabwe. And uh, so it wasn't a, just a completely non-violence. The non-violence was very powerful and probably tipped the, and also Mandela was a prince. He grew up as a, you know, like he was part of royalty. And I think that, and they, always a revolution is started by the people who feel a little bit entitled, right? And Palestinians, there are wealthy, entitled Palestinians, and they're often people who are part of these initiatives. But like, um, for example, um, Ali Abu Awad, he could be the next Mandela but he's getting burnt out right now. He needs a lot of support. Um, he's a brilliant speaker, and the way he confronts his own people is what's really impressive. I don't know if he would say that he is, you know, he himself, um, after being in Israeli prison and being shot at by Israelis and his mother being imprisoned and his brother dying from Israeli fire, um, he has sworn off violence himself, but I don't know if he could make a blanket statement like that either. I don't know if that many Israelis that could do that, right? Gandhi did, and Mandela did. Yes, did, yes, that's right. And they made tremendous, yeah. And they, and they all experienced violence. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, I hear you. Yeah. It's really tough, it's really tough. Mm. Uh, somebody else first, if, if um, yeah. What's your name? David. David. Yes, yeah. How does that work? Yeah. Um, have there been an effort to um, bring the groups together to speak um, with one voice to have more impact? And um, that was my number three. That my number three obstacle was that it doesn't happen very much because of the diversity of the groups and uh, the different ways that they come to the work. Um, the only, not the only place, but one of the places that I've seen that happen with good results are among women's groups. So women's groups who may not may have different ideological and strategic goals, they will unite at certain points to make certain demands as um, women who want peace, right? Um, and, uh, and there have been other examples of that, like um, the um, story of, is it Belin, the Palestinian village that had the 
the wall being built between its houses and its olive groves. Um, on the Palestinian side, it brought together, well, this is, this is it's different. It brought together like people like Fatah and um, Hamas and religious and secular, and it brought together Israelis of all different kinds of, I don't know if that's the same, it's not the same thing as groups coming together, but. Um, and they brought their case all the way up to the Supreme Court, which ruled in their favor. Yeah, and the wall was built in a different direction. So I think your point, um, and I, I wholeheartedly believe this, that with, as soon as you can unite, you have so much more power. And the power to divide people is what keeps them weak. So I do think, and a lot of people are saying, how can we, how can we now take this to the next stage? And I think that part of what would help that would be um, what happened to the Northern Irish grassroots organizations, which is to get a lot of financial support, right? Because these people are doing it on their spare time with full-time jobs, right? You know what that's like, right? To try to change the world on, you know, on Saturday or whatever. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, another, well, someone who hasn't spoken yet. Yes. My name's Bob. Bob. I grew up in the South. Bob grew up in the segregated South, and one thing that made the difference is uh, working with children, and what do I see going on with children in this work? I would say that if there's any one category that's the largest category of initiatives in the book, it's around education and youth. Um, and many, many, there's, there's um, so I told you there's this one binational school, but now there are um, a number that are called hand-to-hand -hand schools that are, um, where the kids are being raised together. It happens with theater and the arts. It happens with education schools. It happens with sports and soccer. It happens with cultural um, things. Um, sometimes it's schools that get together. Sometimes it's happening at places like um, certain, um, there's a park in Jerusalem that's an archeological park. So both kids, both sets of kids go together and they learn about their common history on the land, right, through the archeological uh, finds. So it's going on in so many ways. Yeah, I agree, it's very important. And so do pe the people doing the work. Yeah, and the, and the school for peace at Nebi Shalom generates people who are able to um, do the work with kids in many different ways. So you have not only the initiatives that are, bringing, that are working with kids, but people working with training people to, to lead more of those initiatives. Yeah. Somebody else first, this, <laughs> before I call on you again. <laughs> yes. I'm Pam. Pam. Um, what did the 50 hours per person do in Ireland? Okay. What, yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I was working with the Palestinians and Israelis in the 70s, I was invited by a group called Corimila. And Corimila was one of many, many groups who were bringing British, Protestants, and Catholics together in Northern Ireland in the midst of killings all the time, killings going on every day. And um, they, they, um, they organized, they, because they were part of the EU, when the EU organized, they gave them lots and lots of money to fund these grassroots groups. That's what they did. And by funding these grassroots groups, the grassroots groups um, had a fundamental role in ending the troubles and bringing about the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement in 98, right? And, and the EU was starting to do that during the Oslo years with the Palestinians and the Israelis, and then they stopped with the Intifada, Second Intifada, who, who, would you, who do you give the money to, right? And with everybody.
I think so, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That, that I see this, um, these groups, at, that at, um, funding would help raise their profile and perhaps um, help them to unite, right? There would be some, um, and, to, uh, and just to be able to carry on the work. Um, there's so many people who are willing to do this and it's all, um, and they're very dedicated, right? But it's, it's hard to, to continue it with no support. So institutional support is, uh, I think, fundamental. Yes? I'm curious about the participation. Is it... Um, name, 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 name. Oh, I'm, I'm Craig? Craig. Uh, is it equal participation on, on, from both populations to tell students in these surveys? Is it growing? Is it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are, are these groups small, or mm -hmm. are they getting a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's very, it varies a lot. So there are, there are um, initiatives in the book that started um, 70 years ago and have grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. There are initiatives that happen for a one-time thing where they try to go on and they, don't, they can't, right? There's all, both of those. So, um, and in terms of representation, there are, in Israel, there tends some, especially if it's, on, if it's in Israeli side of Israel, like not a Palestinian village, there tends to be more Israelis and fewer Palestinians. When it's in the West Bank or in an Arab village, there tend to be more Arabs that are involved. Um, at Nevi Shalom, I think they've intentionally done half and half, 50-50. That's usually not that clean, right? Um, a big issue is um, uh, how do you conduct these meetings, no matter how many people are there, so that everyone feels they're on equal ground. So if it's just in Hebrew and you're an Arabic speaker, there's a feeling of being out othered, right? So there's either translation that goes on, or they try, they do things in English to make to make everybody on a less sure footing, or right? So um, yeah, thank you. Are they going? Are they growing? There are some that are growing, and there's some that you know flare up and then disappear. Um, but in general, so I haven't been following it as you know as intensely since I finished writing the book. But um, up to that point, I saw groups that were growing and growing and growing, and I saw other things that um, had existed and were not existing anymore, um, and then new groups coming up because the conditions change, what they're facing changes what the analysis has to be, what the response has to be. Yeah. But I, I would say that in general, from when I looked at the beginning of the century to 2010, definitely, you'll, you'll see as you read like that each chapter gets denser and denser until you get to the 80s and it's like the pace of change is breathtaking at that point. And then the 90s with Oslo. And then it changes a little bit with the second intifada and then what comes afterwards, but yeah. Yes. Nip Mill? Al. Oh no, everyone should read it. <laughs> No, I, I have very, very different ideas about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know what I do. So um, there are umbrella organizations that fund them, fund many different groups. 
So two of the umbrella organizations, actually three, two of them. One is um, New Israel Fund, which is now under attack by the Netanyahu government. I've actually so heard of that Yes, yes. And you might have heard the other one too, which is the Abraham Fund. They do incredible work. And um, during the, I think it was during the Second Intifada, there were some riots among Palestinian villages in Israel, and um, the Israeli police shot like 13 people and young people. And the New Israel Fund has stepped up and done this incredible work that we need in this country as well, which is police training um, and how to form um, police community bonds and that the police need to learn Arabic and how do you become a force that protects Palestinians and doesn't kill them? Sound familiar? Yeah, so the Abraham Fund is, um, you, sh you can find what they're doing, uh, both of them online. They're really good organizations. That the, the second part of my question, separate from that, is um, how, is there a element of the Palestinian people that start Facebooking some of this? Oh, yes. So I'm not. I can't. I'm like. I'm like um, totally disabled um, social media wise. <laughs> but yes, do it. That would be a great thing. That's a great project to take on. And the people who are. Oh, so um, just an aside that you remind me of. The um, during the second intifada was also the time, coincidentally, that media, cell phones, and websites were starting to be more accessible to everyone. And so there were um, things that had been scheduled before the intifada started for that period that went on through media, like they did it through video and chats and all of this. And so, like um, even the uh, in, the interns for peace, the seeds of peace. They all, um, when they go home, they can now call each other on cell phones and they can, uh, they are on social media together. But something like this that would be like more, like centralizing it, do it. <laughs> A life work, I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, you, ha you need her help. You don't, don't leave her. This is not the time to leave. <laughs> Uh, not not something that's centralized. The, 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 no. The, the good news network, so to speak. Uh huh. You know, I get so, I'm on so many um, email chains that are about that. So there's the um, there's uh, the New Israel Fund. There's the American Friends for Peace now, is kind of a good news network. What else? What else do I get on our um, things? And the Abraham Fund. Uh, there's a whole. There is there is a lot out there. If you if you um, you know, search for um, Palestinian Israeli, Arab Jewish, uh, grassroots. Although there's no word in Hebrew, I don't think, for grassroots or in Arabic. It's an interesting word. Do you know any Hebrew word for grassroots? I'm sure there is. It's not um, like Esav or whatever the name for grass is. <laughs> Shurashim. <laughs> it's not that. Great. Uh, wait, I'm, I'm going to see if anyone else wants to say anything besides. Okay. Is it Carl? Yeah. Thank you. As I understand it, the model that you're using for the conflict is essentially a nationalist model, nationalist conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. The problem, as I see it, is that it does not account for the opposition of the entire Muslim world to Israel. Israel's deadliest enemy is not Palestinian, it's the Islamic Republic of Iran. And they don't even like Arabs. Mm -hmm. And so the question essentially is, what role do you see 
in this conflict of the sacred Islamic texts. In other words, the role of Islam itself in the conflict over Israel, because they all are rejectionists saying that Israel should not exist. Mm. I'm not say. sure who you mean by they, because there are a lot of... Um, the, entire, the leaders of the Muslim world. Uh, we saw right. this especially after President Trump uh, said he's going to move our embassy to uh, Jerusalem because he considers Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. There was reaction all over the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. uh, Turkey threatened to send an army in Malaysia, threatened <laughs> to send their mm -hmm. army to march on Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is always threatening to wipe Israel off the mm -hmm. map. And so obviously, to them, Islam itself plays a crucial role in the conflict. And you can see that from the Hamas charter. And I'm sure you've read the Hamas charter. They lay it out on the line that this is a conflict against the Jews, not just Israel. Do you have a question? I'm sorry? He said the, the, yeah, the question. I said, yes, I asked the question. What is the role of Islamic religious doctrine mm -hmm. in the conflict? Okay, so that's not part of the book. <laughs> this is extra. I'm going to charge you extra for this question. This answer. <laughs> yeah. So okay, let me let me let, let, give me give me a chance. Give me a chance. Yeah, give me a chance. Just so I'm just going to answer it very briefly because um, it's not not part of what I came here to do tonight. But um, it's I I I think about that as well, and. Um, what I know from my, you know, I've studied the Jewish text obviously much deeper, but from the, I had as in a part of a doctorate, I, doctoral program, I you know, read a lot of um, Islamic sacred texts as well. And um, what I know about sacred texts is that if they still survive today and we're still reading them, they have everything in them. They have bloody stuff in them, they have peaceful stuff, they have mercy, they have judgment. Right? And I don't think that um, a text by itself can ever cause violence. What causes violence, and this is um, from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs from, Israel, from England, you know, you know who he is? He said that um, anyone who interprets a sacred text literally is doing violence. That may be true, unfortunately. Right? Do you understand the difference? That standard yeah. in standard Islam yeah. is to read the text literally. Not, not for everybody. But certainly the ones that we're hearing about. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you to me what's the bottom line. You've been doing this and being involved with this for many years. Are you now more hopeful or less hopeful as you than you were five, ten, fifteen years ago? Depends what day you catch me. <laughs> um, in general, when I came back from doing the work with Palestinians and Israelis, I was the most optimistic person probably in the world because I had seen people really take um, risks that I don't think I could have taken. Um, and they, um, they, were, they were inspiring. And I got back to the States, and within one month, two months of being in the States, I felt like hopeless again. Not only that, but I felt scared of talking to certain Palestinians. It was like my whole frame of mind. And I, and I realized at that point is that we get this fraction of the news media's version of what goes on. And there are these people on the ground that are doing um, just really amazing, amazing things. So I guess I would have to say that in general, I get more hopeful from being immersed in this. Like while I was immersed in writing the book, horrible things were going on there. Horrible things, people you know, really doing great harm to each other. And um, because I had them in my ear, you know, in my heart, there was some way that um, I was able to take that in and also know that there's a larger reality, which is really helpful. Thank you.
Shall we say thank you and buy the book and I'll sign it for you? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.